Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz. This is the week, this is the last week of October 2022. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Dimitri Kalyagin. Dimitri, how are you? How are you, Conrad? I'm doing really good myself. It's been an exciting week, a lot of developments and you know, in the world of geopolitics and of course spiritual matters as well. We see, um, especially on the European front, things have been things have been consolidating. Uh people have been discussing all these uh huge events including the dirty bomb uh controversy in the ukraine the gathering of the world's russian people council and other events and i'm sure we'll get, we'll get into that this um today uh looking forward to it conrad oh yeah we got russia china all sorts of stuff to talk about today but before we start what we're going to talk about today and this week i want to make sure that we do a very short debrief on our fantastic interview with former U.S. diplomat and Senate GOP foreign policy advisor Jim Jatris, which was, if you haven't listened to it already, go to our Substack or our YouTube channel and listen to it. It's episode four of World War Now. Fantastic, fantastic. You're not going to find that level of in-depth analysis from, you know, a true professional like that, especially from this this metaphysical perspective that we're trying our best to bring you every week. So, yeah, if you haven't watched that, go back and watch it. We cover... It's it's one of the most in-depth conversations about the metapolitical, as well as even more specifically just on-the-ground political military situation in Ukraine. So uh, be sure to avail yourselves of that. We are really appreciative of Jim for coming on, and it's definitely going to be uh, the first of many with, with Mr. Jatris. Yeah, I'd say about a week ago, our conversation with Jim has just touched on some really deep subjects. Of course, we started off with the on-the-grounds view of how things are developing in Europe currently, but also we transitioned to sort of a more deeper philosophical-slash-spiritual discussion of, say, the impact of Christianity and its interaction with the modern um, geopolitical circumstances in Europe, right? And we've kind of skipped between the former USSR to the modern Ukrainian-Russian conflict. We've also spoken about the Balkans, where Jim... You know, where Jim has participated um, actively in the 90s. And I found Jim to be a really interesting guest, not only because of his professional career and, of course, his experience, but also he has a perspective which he isn't afraid to provide. He doesn't, he gives unfiltered answers. He, of course, um, doesn't suck up to anyone, doesn't, he has his own particular opinion formed in the context of an Orthodox Christian American, which is very unique in this day and age. And it's just, it was a really deep and um, interesting conversation, and I've taken a lot away from it, and I'm sure you will too if you give it a listen. Um, of course, lots of constructive feedback was given by our listeners, as well as some recommendations for future subjects we should cover on the podcast, as well as some of the articles that should be written on the Substack. So we always appreciate constructive criticism, feedback, and of course, any particular information that you want to pass on to us, you can feel free to reach us on Substack or in the comments section, of course, or in Twitter at OCanonist, uh, Nomrad, and World War Now. So, yeah, let's just touch on the, some of the subjects today. There's a lot of, there's a lot to discuss, Conrad. Oh, yeah, there's a whole lot to discuss. And right before I pass it over to Dimitri to kind of discuss the some of the political things happening across the, across the multipolar world as everyone kind of takes this big deep breath as the fronts kind of solidify and... A lot of Ukrainian promises kind of fall short as far as, you know, the Southern Front goes. I also just want to say a big thank you to Father Joseph Gleason, who many of you might know runs the fantastic website Russian Faith. Uh, he has a great substack as well, Father Joe's newsletter, as well as, uh, what is it called here? Sorry, got to move this window out of the way. Uh, the Russia Christian News Syndicate. We have recommended both of those on our substack. So if you scroll down to the recommended, you'll see both of those. 
Father Joseph wrote a fantastic quick article, uh, really saying some nice things about us and our analysis and our podcast. So thanks a lot, Father Joseph. I, I'm sure you'll be listening to this. At least I would, I would hope so. And uh, we would love to have you on the show at some point. Um, Father, if you don't know, Father Joseph immigrated to Russia with his family. He was an American Orthodox priest in the Russian church. And he's been there for a while now. And he, he really put out some great content, whether it's just about life in Russia or, you know, about the spiritual religious situation. So uh, thank you so much, Father Joseph. And uh, with that, I'll uh, kick it over to Dimitri to tap us into what's, uh, what's going on in the, in the multipolar sphere. Yeah, and I think uh, touching on that subject of, of course, Father Joseph's opinions on, say, uh, world matters, outs, even some of those outside of, say, uh, you know, the clerical role are also important because the role of clergy is not just to, you know, bring us to repentance and, of course, administer the sacraments, but also to streamline some of the zeal which laity sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes try to try to, of course, unleash upon the world in their, you know, in their fervor for orthodoxy. So it's always important to have the clergyman's opinion. And and I think, frankly, Russia today is doing just that. We see in Russia the um, 24th uh, World Russian People's Council has taken place. Uh, the, I think it's uh, already on its second session. And basically what this council is, it's an essentially a congress of famous Russian pol politicians, clergymen, and uh, cultural figures, including artists, poets, historians, academics, who all gather together in order to give their opinion on the current um, situation concerning Russia, Orthodoxy, and uh, the future of the Russian civilization. Um, this council started in 1993. It was started by uh, our current patriarch, Kirill, of Moscow and Russia, so the first hierarch. Back in 1993, he was a simple metropolitan, and just the just one of the many metropolitans in Russia, but he kind of essentially ex sort of uh, made this his uh, sort of project child of, you know, creating this place where laity can speak to clergy and work together in order to um, bring, bring up and bring up these sometimes contentious subjects, especially if you can imagine in the 1990s when capitalism and ramp rampant liberalism was tearing Russian society apart, especially patriotic and more conservative-minded Russians really needed to um, come together and discuss these deeper subjects, you know, something outside of just simply making money or living off of the pension or, you know, surviving and meeting day-to-day -day needs. People wanted to discuss deeper subjects. They wanted to um, kind of reconnect with their Russian history, which for many years the Soviet regime has suppressed. And Patriarch Kirill's project, this Russian World's People's Council, kind of brought all of this to into fruition. And today um, there's <clears throat> they're having the 24th council session and it's the opening has been extremely powerful i think we'll discuss that in a bit oh yeah i'm seeing some it's some very we've talked so much about the civilizational move that russia's making and how the its expansion of territory really does mark a return to the this age of empires this 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 world where you know states backed by their churches and their and their faith leaders was was really how you know, things were executed on, on, at least on the European continent, especially. And in many ways, I liked what you talked about, uh, Dimitri, about, you know, the oversight of clergy and taming some of the zeal. And this might not be exactly regarding clergy, but I wanted to remark on, I can't remember his name. It was Anton, his last name started with a K. One of like broadcasters of Russia today made some ridiculous comments again about like drowning Ukrainian children or something. And of course, actually immediately denounced and it was dismissed and Russian society was like, yeah, what the hell? Why would you? Why would you say something like that? Which, I think, is just very interesting to compare to 
how the West and the media handles their stuff. Because, look, there's all sorts of criticisms you can make of RT or, or Russian state media. But in the West, you, you, there, there's when it comes to direct hatred directed towards your enemies, there's um, there actually is no limit to what you can and can't say. It doesn't matter how disgusting it may or may be. There's In Ukraine, there's still people that come on TV to this day that since 2014 have been like openly calling for like large-scale ethnic cleansing of the Donbass and these other regions. And... I just wanted to kind of lay aside that because we're about to mm-hmm. get a bit into this 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 kind of pillar of this growing uh, institution in Russian society that is so inter- was was started at the beginning of the Russian Federation by the current patriarch, as you said. And there were speeches there, like Alexander Dugin. There have been uh, Putin has attended it in the past. It's it's becoming this very relevant institution. But there were some some figures that weren't there this year, and. Um, that was a bit notable. So if you wanted to maybe touch on that a little bit, Dimitri. So I just wanted to mention Anton Krasovsky. You mentioned him. So Anton's, of course, his comments uh, have been absolutely disgusting. They've been, um, uh, everyone has denounced them. And just want to give you a bit of a background about Mr. Krasovsky. So he's a Russian journalist, literature critic. Um, I've been following him since roughly the mid-2000s. And he's said some pretty cringe things. But recently, in the last two years, he's... Some of his remarks concerning COVID have been outwardly absolutely disgusting. And of course, it's no surprise that somebody who is pro-mandatory vaccination, yes, you heard me right. So Anton Krasovsky was pushing the Russian uh, Russian politics, especially he was crit- critiquing Putin for not instituting mandatory vaccines. Um, so Anton Krasovsky spoke out in, in favor of mandatory vaccinations in 2021. And now, of course, he's speaking out in terms of he wants to violently kill Ukrainians and claiming all these disgusting things. In his. And of course, whenever somebody gives a speech or gives a talk, there's always some leeway as to the mistakes, or maybe they may, they may say some unhinged things. But he's, he's a professional journalist. This man's been working in, the, in this particular sphere for about 30 years. To allow yourself to say such vulgar and, I guess, such profane things in a time of war when already emotions are really hot is, I think... Um, definitely outstandingly horrible and yeah it's not it's no surprise that someone who is pro mandatory vaccination is pro you know state violence is of course pushing for you know the killing of ukrainian civilians of course this has been absolutely um condemned by not just the russian orthodox people but also the mainstream russian political elites and uh, most people have already pushed that pushed back against mr krasovsky so he's just an outstanding i guess by outstanding i don't mean that in a good way i mean he's a very popular Russian journalist, and uh, his comments have been absolutely condemned. Um, I think it's, yeah, just worth kind of giving that disclaimer. Yeah, I think uh, they were trying to, a lot, the Western media was taking it and running with it, of course, because they'd finally gotten something that at least remotely resembled some of the stuff we've been seeing out of Ukrainian and even German, Polish, Lithuanian media for a long time now. So uh, when it comes to uh, the the All Russian Council, uh, which popular dignitaries this year, at least people, politicians, were and weren't present? Like, was Putin there this year? Yeah. So uh, in terms of dignitaries, of course, the opening speech was given by the Patriarch of Russia himself. So that's already a, I guess, a very really groundbreaking, essentially. And so the Patriarch gave the opening speech, which was quite long winded, mind you, in about fifteen to twenty minutes. It was the patriarch spoke about many subjects, including transhumanism, Satanism, the fact that the world has united itself under this liberal, you know, this liberal uh, 
so-called nice guys of, you know, we're coming to save the world and bring prosperity. He basically debunked all of that, just as he did in his previous sermons, but he's underlined that. And I think most people in the hall already knew the subject he was speaking on, but he just wanted to underline. And of course, Patriarch Kirill leading the conference is a huge um, perk, I think, for everyone involved. Everyone is, it gives it a sort of air of legitimacy that, look, this isn't just like a forum of, like an internet forum or a forum of, a forum of, you know, um, people gathering to discuss some sort of uh, ideas which will never come into fruition and, and which will never uh, eventuate. No, this is a live a live conference full of people who are active currently in, say, even not, not just in the lives of Russians, but in international affairs. And I think one of those dignitaries who um, was there was, of course, Lavrov. Lavrov uh, chimed in on Zoom and gave a, about a six-minute talk. And, of course, Lavrov is the Russian foreign minister, so he is especially world-famous for his... Uh, state-of-the-art diplomacy, his um, interactions with um, world leaders, and of course his uh, absolutely uh, state-of-the-art realpolitik answers and the way he approaches conflict and uh, diplomatic affairs is absolutely outstanding. So Lavrov gave a speech, and in this in this talk, actually, what's interesting, Lavrov in his six minutes did mention that um, the fact that it's very disturbing to at least Lavrov and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that Russian clergy in Ukraine are being harassed by the SBU and the Ukrainian government. Now, this is this is kind of we spoke about this uh, two weeks ago. That it's a little bit unprecedented that, say, the Russian, uh, I guess, the Russian military complex, the Russian government focuses on the affairs of clergymen and kind of, I guess, uses them as not as a pretext, but mentions them as a certain th uh, element of priority. Remember, initially, the special military operation was strictly about demilitarization denuclearization, denazification, now it's kind of transitioning to, well, we actually have to defend the interests of the church. And hearing that out of Lavrov's mouth was just outstanding. But besides that, of course, Putin, unfortunately, wasn't present. And I understand, it's probably understandable because there was already all these other great politicians and members of the parliament. And uh, <clears throat> Putin was probably busy behind the scenes. Of course, Shoigu wasn't there. The minister of defense was not present. None of the generals or admirals of the current Russian Navy, including Surovikin, were all not present. So in terms of military officers, they were not present. A lot of ministers, of course, and members of the Russian cabinet and executive were there. And of course, a lot of clergy and bishops. Let's just mention that as well. So it was uh, quite a collective of people. And you mentioned Dugin as well. Uh, so the subjects they discussed are very pertinent, of course. I found I found the subjects really striking. I'm sure you've listened to Dugan's speech and his mentioning of you know the fact that uh, a certain Rubicon has been crossed, right? Like we spoke about that with Jim Jatras last week. We were talking about this before we went live as well. At this point, it's 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 become clear that there's there's hasn't really been a while in some senses the SMO starting was the crossing of the Rubicon as well. We already know that you know Boris Johnson in the West killed the, the negotiation attempts that were going alongside the initial attacks and ever since what we're seeing now even uh some people have been talking about the somewhat reopened calls with these dirty bombs between Shoigu Lloyd Austin that were if if this latest attempt at diplomacy here doesn't pass I think that then there's it's it's over there's not going to be any kind of negotiated settlement here and Dugan is is, is pointing to that grander reality that the, the spiritual box has already been opened here and in the in the, in these remarks you know Patriarch Kirill and everyone they're talking about Russia as Third Rome, Russia as Catacone, and these kinds of things, and e even getting into other civilizational ideas like education and, and and these sorts of things. And from an American perspective, like, oh, what, they're talking about banning phones from schools and stuff? But if you've ever actually attended school recently, like I have, you realize that that's an actual serious problem that a serious country would take seriously. 
and when it comes to this uh like this this council in general i mean these are the kinds of things that perhaps in america there's political conferences from each or either side but the closest thing you get to this is what like the southern baptist convention and the southern ba- <laughs> like like this but but the southern baptist conventions paul like they've their influence has been waning ex- exponentially ever and they're ever since you know the past dechristianization of america for the past 30 plus years so seeing this become a more and more relevant institution and to have people like dugan who are who are at this point are leading thought leaders regarding this conflict being able to kind of diagnose the future not the future but diagnose the current issue and you know discuss the possibilities of the future it it shows a, a somewhat united civilizational front here and yeah no this the the subject matter alone is it, it very much fits in with what we talk about on on this podcast as well and 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 it's not the the conference isn't even over yet so be sure to stay tuned to our our social media because we'll be sure to be sharing translations and information about the rest of what is said yes and of course it's a little bit difficult to of course translate straight oral speeches into text and of course post all these verbal remarks of course into text and do live translations but um you know just give us several hours and we'll be giving you the live almost the live streamed information concerning what's being said at the conference so i think you mentioned dugan's speech how he crossed the rubicon and he's basically said that you know the spiritual box has been ticked yes and the patriarch even remind remarked the same uh, the the spiritual war is more significant than the one being fought on the ground in the ukraine specifically like there is a lot to say about the fact that russia has entered into a new phase of being and Russia itself is testing, like it's being tested. Not only is it testing itself, but I think behind the scenes, of course, uh, the omnipotent, omnipotent God is testing Russia and seeing if it can withstand the challenges and kind of, uh, despite its own sins and shortcomings, actually overcome these uh, modern um, modern challenges before it. And you know, Russia is still, of course, as as many nations in the in the East and the West are, are infected with a certain strains of liberalism, which permeate and. You know, events such as the World Russian People's Council, they've tried to kind of diagnose and uh, resolve some of these issues, and they do bring up, uh, you know, they do bring up things which are um, essentially uh, things that need to change, things that need to be updated in Russian culture, like you mentioned the mobile phones in schools, right? Like, that seems a little bit silly to, to maybe Western folks, but actually, no, phones are a great source of distraction, especially in high schools, and of course, the prominence of social media and the fact that you can just you know, download TikTok and watch that in class, maybe with the sound down or even with your, you know, uh, wireless, wireless earphones. It's just, a, a, you know, it, well, the world has changed and Russia's trying to kind of adapt in its own, in its own kind of orthodox way to it, uh, in a very conservative way. Um, and, you know, many may say that Dugin's, Dugin's, of course, he's over-invested now. He's really, he's a hawk. You know, he's, his daughter was killed by Ukrainian terrorists. He, he's, his words cannot be taken seriously, but no, actually, considering Dugan's speeches, and I've listened to Dugan for maybe over four, 15 years now, on and off, and I, I don't agree with everything he says, but Dugan has, his opinions have not changed, despite the tragedy which occurred um, with the killing of his daughter a couple months ago, his opinions have stayed basically the same, he's always been pro-Russian unity, That he always believed that Russia should unite, despite some of these small ideological differences, Russian he believes Russian center-left, Russian center-right, the Russian far-right, the Russian, even the Russian conservative communists, which, mind you, one of the attendees was uh, the leader of the Russian Communist Party, Gennady Zyuganov, and he actually gave one of the most interesting speeches, which kind of reminded me of the recent uh, Chinese Communist Party National Congress speech by Xi Jinping. Uh, he mentions how, you know, 
the benefits of Marx for Russian culture. He somehow manage, manages to intertwine Stalin, Marx, and Christ into one 10-minute speech segment, which was, uh, you know, entertaining to say the least. And of course, we know Zyuganov is one of these old-school Russian boomer. Not to offend Zyuganov, of course, but, you know, he is a baby boomer. He is from the old generation, similar to Lukashenko. He's a man of an old build. He grew up and he realized himself in the Soviet Union and his transition to the modern Russian reality. And he's one of the last people, like mind you, Zhirinovsky already passed away this year. Uh, Gorbachev passed away. He's one of these last titans of the old order. And to see Zyuganov still kind of, uh, you know, participate in this, essentially this Russian Orthodox conference from a communist conservative perspective is quite interesting, actually. And um, you know, I, I was quite pleased to hear that, you know, he was completely supportive of the current Russian civilizational agenda, which is, you know, inf like inform Russian civilization and culture through orthodoxy, enlighten it, because without this enlightenment, the West will defeat Russia in, you know, in the cultural sense, of course, but also in a military one in the long term. Oh, it's true. And I mean, we just talked about Father Joseph Kalisin, but, you know, he just just in the aftermath of Obergefell versus Hodges saw the writing on the wall in America and realized that it, it, at this point it was better to raise his younger, his growing family in a, in a, in a civilization that was, was on the upswing, even if it was starting from a place perhaps of lower, uh, lo, lower starting point economically or, 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 you know, for, for individual uh, prosperity, perhaps it's, it's, it's a it's a civilization that's on the upswing as opposed to a, an empire in decline. And yeah, you mentioned Zirinovsky. I just, <laughs> I want to, you know, I want to pay respects to the, to the, to the vaccine's strongest soldier himself, uh, octuple, va eight times vax, Zirinovsky, you know, died how he lived, really, really shilling for, for the vaccine. But, you know, he was, he was a character and he was a, and he did do his part in revitalizing the Russian state. So, you know. Mm. I tip my hat to you, Mr. Uh, Sputnik man. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but, uh, no, go ahead. No, and I just wanted to mention uh, the, the Russian politics, you know, as we get into the domestic matters, and this doesn't really matter, but just looking at the last two years in retrospect, we have these very particular opinions on, say, the COVID and on the vaccine. So we have Russian Zhirinovsky, who is the leader of the Russian right wing, right? Which is, um, you know, uh, comedically named the Democratic Liberal Party of Russia. That is the Russian far-right party, the Democratic Liberal Party. Okay, so it's led by this guy named Zhirinovsky. Now, Zhirinovsky, incredibly pro-vax, actually, had a similar stance to Anton Krasovsky. Almost he almost wanted the state to mandate vaccines for everyone. He personally claimed to have been vaccinated eight times before, mind you, even boosters came out. So he says he took eight-plus doses of Sputnik, which, you know, uh, right... Um, no comments on that, but essentially that was Zhirinovsky's opinion. Then you have Gennady Zyuganov, of course, the leader of the Communist Party, who was vehemently anti-vax. So we have the Communists being anti-vax. We have the far Russian right wing, who are called liberal Democrats, being incredibly pro-vax. And then we have Putin, who, you know, people claim is, you know, like an authoritarian leader. He takes an absolutely libertarian, um, neutral stance and says, well, get vaccinated if you want to. There won't be any mandates. There won't be any QR codes. There will be some mask mandates, but even that was loosely enforced. So we just have this absolutely bizarre um, reality. Uh, Russia is just a completely different world in this COVID environment. And of course, now that we've kind of left the whole COVID agenda and, uh, you know, the new thing has emerged, it's kind of funny to look back and just, you know, have a good laugh. Well, and I think it's very funny. We talked. We just talked about a somewhat broad spectrum of Russian politics. Notice who was not mentioned was Alexei Navalny. You know, we talked about that two weeks ago, and I, I think like 
just so everybody can understand, Dmitry just kind of briefly explained what anyone could learn from Wikipedia reading about the major parties in Russia. But just so you know, anyone commenting on from the Washington Post, the New York Times, mainstream media in America, Germany, Berlin, uh, the UK, they don't understand that. Like they 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 don't actually are they they are are willfully ignorant or have not availed themselves of the information that Dmitry just explained. Because if you read their analysis, it's completely divorced from the political reality in Russia. But we might get back to that Russian council a little bit. I want to switch gears a little bit to the Orient, to the dragon in the East, China, who also had a very civilizationally relevant council that had a lot to do with uh, Xi Jinping and his um, his continued centralization of power. The West tried to make some fireworks out of a uh, out of the former president of, of China being escorted out, but uh, I'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, Dmitry had... Uh, he also had a bit to say about yeah we are kind of drawing a connection here between these these two these two big meetings in in Russia and China because they they point to the broader civilizational uh, spiritual battle we've kind of been discussing. Yeah, so I guess as most of you are aware, China is the number two greatest economy in the world. Russia is the number two greatest military power in the world. America, of course, holding primacy in both spheres. So essentially, we have these number two and three great civilizational nations holding these huge conferences the russians and russia the chinese and because they're kind of they all they both occurred in october we can maybe draw some contrast here so the 20th national congress of the chinese communist party is took place about a week ago exactly and it's already finished but so we can kind of look back and view the results now the current uh chairman of the communist party in china has remained seated for a i believe a fourth term so general secretary xi jinping has retained power he's you can say he's, he's quite old at this point, 74, and I think he even, um, I think he's almost outside of the delegated range stated in the Chinese constitution that you could actually hold office, but the Chinese at this point don't really care about those particular stipulations. What they do care about is national identity, continued conservative policy nationally, and of course the pushing of Chinese interests, both domestically and internationally. But, mind you, in a very sustained conservative fashion. What we saw here was not the flamboyant and powerful speeches that even Putin gave recently in his, uh, you know, numerous addresses this year, but where he speaks about, say, multipolarity, international affairs, how the world order is changing. You know, Putin makes these grand kind of, he paints the world um, with, you know, his own essentially Russian civilizational brush. Xi Jinping, no, he strictly speaks about China. He does not mention the world murder the word multipolarity. He does not mention China. I mean, sorry, does not mention Russia. He speaks strictly about China. And of course, I'm sure you've meant, you've noticed this, uh, Conrad, but Xi Jinping, as soon as he mentions Taiwan and he says, look, we'd love to reunite with Taiwan peacefully through diplomacy. That would be our goal, but we could also reunite with it in a military way for a military solution. And of course, the entire Chinese Communist Congress began to just gave him a standing ovation, essentially. And the greatest applause that occurred that day was when he mentioned Taiwan essentially being militarily conquered, which was, you know, brings me to at least, you know, even though he was reserved in his statements, as soon as he mentions the one subject which the whole world speaks about in terms of China, uh, you know, China being the aggressor, the Communist Party upholds that and they, you know, they all stand up and give him an applause, so. Yeah, no, this, uh, this in some sense, this does show that there is... Uh, China does have a bit more of a secure footing in the new multipolar world than perhaps Russia will. I, I, w I would never go so far as to say that Russia is going to immediately become a client state of China, but 
for, for all sorts of reasons, some of them even just geographical, Russia is going to have a harder time being as independent as China is, uh, if for no other reason than, they, than their cultural uh, ethnic similarities with Europe. But uh, I think it's just important as well to recognize, oh, I actually wanted to mention the, the, the fireworks and drama that the West was focusing on about this, which was uh, the former president of China, Hu Jintao, being uh, escorted out by... Uh, which, which I watched the video right when it happened, and it was Jack Posobiec that had initially posted it when I saw it, and it's like dragged out in front of everybody. And I watched the video, I'm like, okay, this could be a political statement, but he was politely asked to leave and then walked out not in handcuffs or even being held or anything like that. So I, I, was, I, was, I left an open mind about it. And mm-hmm. I, listening to Brian Berletic, who has a very, very good opinion, he has a lot of good friends who are in China, who have who have analyzed China for a long time, and he... He gave some background in the fact that there's all sorts of media reports about how Hu Jintao is there to show respect. He's extremely old for his like long-term, you know, service to China, and that you know ultimately when he was walking in, he was also having some kind of health issues. And and Brian just points out that this was obviously him being, you know, escorted out because he was he was aging and having health issues. And it's also important to note as well. Uh, we were talking about this before that there were no masks, at least the high-ranking officials. And now I'm sure they're all you know, have their Sinovax and all the things that they still have mandated there. But uh, it seems that for even in China, I think we're eventually going to start to see, even though in certain provinces they do still do the zero COVID enforcement stuff. You know, you've seen the videos of them locking people in Costco when someone tests positive. But ultimately, I think in the next year, we're going to see that begin to wane in China. And we discussed with Jim Jatchis, you know, the possibility of a, perhaps a, a dangerous, you know, totalitarian system arising from China in the East. And we're, we're very aware of that. But it's, it's also just important to recognize that as of right now, from the perspective of the West, where it's not like we're in any immediate danger of being land invaded by China. This is more about the this is more about how in the future our military is going to be forced to behave abroad, which is extremely important, actually, for the well-being of, of us here at home. Mm-hmm. But if you read, uh, if you actually, I think most of you listening now will have read it, but if you're listening for the first time or just have caught the past few episodes, be sure to go back and read um, my article, the first article on the World War Now substack just called World War Now. And, and I talk about China in relation to the growing Orthodox civilization of Russia and then, you know, the theocratic Muslim state of Iran. Uh, and I kind of reference China as, as kind of the national socialist state of China. And in many ways, this, con- much like... The, the all-Russian conference, Dmitry was just speaking about, really is representative of the, of the direction that Orthodox Rus is, is going. Uh, this conference really, I think, is a display of the, of the social, political religion of China in its, you know, neo-Confucianist, kind of neo-conservative Marxist overtones with this, uh, this growing focus on the centralized person of Xi. You know, in many ways, like, much as many will say that communism kind of reformed the imperial spirit of Russians into this atheistic bastardized formed in many form in many ways you know CPC rule in China has done the same for imperial China because imperial Russia imperial China you know they they ended around the same time and now seeing this character in Xi who is in many ways much less atheistic than his predecessors especially Mao and is still willing to follow Deng Xiaoping who if you if you want to learn more about this actually go to the Dr. Steve Churley YouTube channel and um find a documentary, a video called The Rise of Nationalist China. I wrote uh, that documentary. It's really short length. It's less than 10 minutes long. And it explains kind of the history of China's shift from more of a a true communist Marxist state to a more, uh, a more what I would call a national socialist state, you know, a nationalist state with, they talk about China being a, 
a socialist state with Chinese characteristics and these sorts of ideas, which this kind of uh, social, political religion in China is very much uh, the, 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 the forward thrust of the growth of their civilization state. And that is very much kind of typified in the centralization of Xi's power. I believe now the six other members of the Communist Party steering committee are loyal uh, Xi Jinping sycophants. So he he's very much in the in the driver's seat of the most populated nation in the world. Yeah, of course, and uh, I think it's good to mention Dr. Steve Turley's video, The Rise of Nationalist China. In the said video, um, uh, Turley reads out that, you know, uh, the fact that China now is rising up and it's not actually opposed to Christianity is a huge perk and in its sort of development because it's, on one hand, China is rejecting modern liberal sensibilities and the liberal dogmas which we're getting spoon-fed here in the West, for example, you know, the fact that the feminization of men, and I'm speaking very broadly here, in a cultural sense, and of course in a, you know, in, in every sense, is is a negative, is a negative thing, and China's trying to shut that down, shut that down on a, for, from, you know, top down from a political angle. On, on the other hand, you have the opening of Orthodox churches and cathedrals all over China. We have the um, Russian bishops essentially visiting China, you know, promoting um, missionary work, essentially unopposed. The Chinese communist government is, you know, despite its communism, and of course, we just mentioned Gennady Zyuganov in Russia, communism in the 21st century is very different to the communism we saw in the 20th. It's a bit more lenient on religion. I think we're seeing that across the board in almost every uh, post-Soviet, post-communist nation. And so that's something to keep in mind. I think it's as the world is changing, we need to keep our perspective open. And I'm not saying communism and socialism is good, but I, we do need to seek, um, and by we, I mean, every person needs to seek, I guess, allies where they can, and they need to see, you know, the good in certain systems and, uh, you know, at least keep an open mind. So what we see in China at the moment is essentially a regime, and I'm kind of discussing the Dr. Steve Turley video, we see this nationalistic regime uh, basically solidifying itself, and China has... China has evolved from its really deep communist roots in the 60s during the Cultural Revolution when they did actually persecute Christianity in the 60s and 50s, but they're coming out of that and transitioning almost flawlessly, opening up not just to capitalism, but also to religious ideas. And one of those, of course, one of those movements is orthodoxy. So um, we're benefiting quite deeply from that. And I guess the contrast, right, if we're speaking about most Soviet and post-communist and socialist countries generally the main contrast between russia and china would be that russia did not have a smooth transition from communism to say uh sort of a keynesian capitalist liberalism it broke the russia's back was broken in the 90s it did not have a smooth transition into say what we'd call the modern economic reality into the neoliberal you know world which in which we live now russia's back was broken it's it was desecrated, it was looted, and yeah, of course, many claim that the 90s were a golden age, but I think those people are in many ways deluded by the fact that, well, by their essentially liberal paradigm, believing that freedom uh, it, freedom matters above everything, and unfortunately it does not, and even the church has experienced many, many downsides in the 90s, and, you know, the patriarch, patriarch Kirill and patriarch Alexius II of Russia did speak, speak about this, so, but notice Russia, Russia and China, Russia underwent this broken back, essentially, um, destruction phase, which now it's revitalizing itself, kind of bringing itself up out of the ashes like a phoenix. Hence, we see these huge Russian council, Russian People's Council conferences giving these fiery speeches. It's kind of 
Russia's on this mission to re-energize and revitalize itself. Meanwhile, China has never had a it's really never had a unfortunate tragic phase in the last 80 years. It's just slowly transitioned out of this deep communism into a more conservative, Confucius, as Conrad mentioned, nationalistic reality with, you know, some capitalist spice included there. But by, by capitalist spice, I mean, China's a huge capitalist giant. It is one of the main pillars that the world economy essentially stands on at this point. It may even be the turtle on which the world sits. At, you know, that's at, at this at this point, it's uh, its economy is a titan that you know. Uh, I mean, nobody can really subdue it at this point. China's free to act as it as it wills, and it's just interesting to see uh, where China will go with this because Russia's really going ahead of full steam, essentially just not slowing down. Meanwhile, China's taking a slow route, not mentioning multipolarity in its speech, just taking a very conservative opinion, still anti-Western in its, I suppose designated long-term goal, but not really pushing the agenda. It's really kind of taking its time. I'm not sure if you're noticing these trends, Conrad, but that's just something I've realized, not just from Dr. Turley's video, but also from the recent speech of Xi Jinping. Oh, no, it's totally true. And you mentioned the fact that, you know, China didn't have an equivalent to the 90s as Russia did, as it kind of transitioned out of, you know, pure communism. And in that video that I wrote, it, it mentions a lot of quotes from Deng Xiaoping, as we said. And he very much speaks about in the 90s when he was consolidating power against the more hardcore Marxian elements of uh, the Chinese Communist Party in, uh, in China at the time. He, he very much explicitly says that it's much, we need to be more wary of dangers from the left than of dangers from the right. And he was very much speaking culturally as well as you know, economically. And he, yes, he opened up the markets a bit, but he didn't completely surrender China to the looting that Russia experienced. And, and we're seeing the fruits of that now. And sure, you'll read like Peter Zeehan and these people that say the Russian economy, I mean, not the Russian, the Chinese economy is on the brink of collapse and whatnot. And sure, China may be in for, you know, China did take COVID way too far and they did have a bit of a, a bit of a crucifixion martyrdom as Metropolitan Neofitos called it as their government really cracked down on that stuff. But as a civilization, they still remain trucking along and powerful and are committed to re-territorialization when it comes to Taiwan and are only going to surpass, in my opinion, both uh, the U.S. and Russia militarily in the next 50 years. And uh, when it comes to the conference, I know one of the biggest things that came out of it was China's finally starting to crack down on abortion as they're, you know, they're, they're bracing for the impact that the one-child policy is going to have on the, on the next generation as they kind of hollowed out the generation below them. But is there anything else that was discussed at the, at the conference uh, Dimitri, maybe you want to get into the abortion stuff. Is there anything you want to? Yeah, make sure I would say. Know about that? I, I guess like a nationalist perspective on pro-life is always like a good thing to see, especially a leading, you know, leading nation in the world. We see many Western countries recently, such as Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, have legalized abortion actually to a great extent, almost to the, I mean, well through the second trimester, which is pretty incredible actually. So we have Western countries doing the opposite uh well i'm not talking about roe v wade which was a great achievement for you know christianity and conservative americans here but other western nations smaller ones have been actually liberalizing abortion laws recently and it's been a uh, it's been quite tragic the last 10 years for the pro-life movement at least in the west now seeing russia china essentially limiting abortions like not not entirely but severely is of course a i guess it's, i suppose a positive development we see these countries actually focusing on their birth rates moving their opinions away from, say, these Marxist realities of, well, um, you know, my body, my choice, uh, these sort of ideas, which, you know, don't stem from anything besides, like, 
rudimentary, ruthless, and negligent, you know, atheism, right? We're moving towards, okay, every person actually does matter, every person contributes to the state, even from a nationalist perspective, you know, to to kind of build and uh, cement and to enforce the genophon to, you know, a nation needs its people and one-child policy will not do the trick here. They need to, China's demographics are in for a bit of a shock, especially with their male-dominated aging population, right? And I'm, by aging, I mean there's still about a generation or two to go before that gets really bad, but I think that taking these things into consideration, and look, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and if this is the way in which abortion is going to be limited through Chinese, say, um, prideful nationalism, then so be it. I think that's a that's a plus, not just for you know the world, but also for the souls of Chinese people. And you know, it, I think everybody and for China to set such an example and to you know crack down on abortion, that's a great achievement. No, it is, and you know, the Bible in the Old Testament is is enough evidence that. There are still sure there might be many nations that are not baptized that are not followers of the one true God and of Christ, but it's still beneficial to those nations to not you know drench their soil in the blood of their babies. You know that stuff still reaps you know physical consequences. Like sin is still sin and has consequences in the world, even if the people might you know be able to plead ignorance of Christianity. And I think China, sure, we might not necessarily see an orthodox revival in China as I personally anticipate seeing in the West in the next perhaps 50, 60 years, but they're allowed to evangelize. They're, they have large cathedrals that actually are allowed to serve liturgies. There are ethnic Chinese, uh, not they're not the majority yet, but there, there are ethnic Chinese parishioners and even clergy. So I think it's important to pray for that and be aware that there is some legitimacy to the Chinese restriction and persecution of perhaps certain uh, Protestant or, you know, uh, non-Trinitarian groups evangelizing within their country, because we know that the CIA and we know that foreign intelligence agencies use these groups, use religious groups, use um, especially Americanist religious groups, you know, American, uh, in many ways, certain forms of American evangelicalism have been very fruitful abroad because of how tied together they are with individualism and with these other ideas that are so are so valuable to the American project overseas. So again, I'm not saying that anything the Chinese have done to any kind of, you know, Christian group is justified, but it's important to remember that th th there's more to it than just, you know, th they're persecuting the religion because they they don't like it, you know, they they have shown a willingness to work with the Russian Orthodox Church, and they don't. That's not even something they had to do. I don't think Russia would. I don't think the Russian state is so so holy that they would turn on China for not supporting the church. So, so I think it's a positive development. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning the fact that you know this idea of oh well, if a nation isn't Christian, if a nation isn't Orthodox, then everything should be allowed. No, that's the wrong. I like God will judge of course, these nations and individuals by their actions and sins, even even in their ignorance, right? So these uh, these nations such as China, such as Russia, even Russia during its Soviet period, when collectively ignorant people commit sin, they are still sometimes brought to repentance through, you know, corporeal worldly punishment. Or for example, we see that in the stories of Jonah and Jeremiah in the Bible, when, you know, God sends Jonah to Nineveh, even though the Ninevehans they had the so we're talking about the ancient Assyrians. We spoke about this on episode one and two. They had no idea who the true God was. They were you know celebrating pagan. They were you know probably sacrificing animals, maybe even people. They were quite quite a they had a, quite a cruel culture. And God still sends Jonah to a foreign nation in order to tell them not to sin. In the same way we see China today, of course trying to ban abortion. And 
whatever their motivation is, decreasing collective sin will, of course, probably decrease the chance that God will send a sort of um, uh, sort of punishment upon the nation to collectively uh, kind of have them reflect on their actions. And I think recently um, the famous Russian hieromonk, Roman Matyushin, who is, of course, he's, uh, he's famous in Russia not just for his pious work around monasteries, especially women's and men's monasteries. He travels around. He's also uh, in his, well, he was a layman. He was a famous Russian poet and singer. And his, he actually continues to produce poetry. He's well into his late 60s now. He's considered, I guess, one of these modern Russian elders who uh, has, of course, people want to hear his opinion there. They love his work. They love his, he's a real genius of poetry and uh, songwriting and in modern Russia, I guess, and being a clergyman and being a monk, it's really a unique opinion. And his recent statement about the Ukrainian war, he says he doesn't give a really patriotic or, you know, pro-war hawkish statement. He just says simply, this is all happening because of the sin of Ukrainian people. He says, the degeneracy, lewdness, and other cultural garbage has brought about the Lord's wrath upon the Ukrainian land. And there will be no escaping it except for repentance. And even then, just as when King David married Bathsheba, of course, the punishment may still come, which, I mean, that's an incredibly scary statement from a hieromonk who's, you know, considered, um, you know, quite influential in the Orthodox Church. I, and I, I believe, you know, based on the statements of other bishops calling for repentance, calling for extra, I suppose, extra judicial, extra administrative fasting in the month of October, which is supposed to be quite a chill month for us Orthodox folks. There really isn't any fasting period in October besides your, your Wednesdays and your Fridays. We have these huge figures in Orthodox Christianity saying that collective repentance is needed or else, you know, collective sin People sinning in a certain, you know, this is why I guess libertarianism, I'm kind of going off tangent, Conrad, but libertarianism really, um, as for all its perks, it really isn't a reflection on objective society. If you're a Christian and you have this idea that, you know, collective, uh, there's not collective guilt, but I, I guess it would be a, like a collective guilt. Wrongdoing could bring around punishment, not just for one person, but for an entire nation. And China avoiding that somehow through the Lord's providence is, I guess, a positive development. Yeah. Well, even more than libertarianism, the danger that we see in the West that's so pervasive, and even, I think you would agree, Dimitri, even in my personal life, it, just being so inculcated in Western media, it's hard to let go of the individualism that gives rise to, whether it be libertarianism, perhaps at best, or, you know, international neoliberalism at worst. The, the civilization that us Westerners live in is very much geared towards making that everybody's default position. We're actually having a pretty in-depth conversation about this before we started recording about how if if a civilization that's religious and overtly religious rises up it it has a different kind of power because in many ways a lot of the people behind it have to they 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 sign up for the religion they they are catechized whether it be in something like Islam or orthodoxy and they then consciously and under, understand the tenets of their religion at least somewhat understand their religious authority and follow it whereas when it comes to the neoliberal you know, smugness and authority of of the West. It's sort of this naive belief that they just came to those beliefs objectively through observing reality, when in reality, a very carefully crafted media environment through from when you were a child in the media you consumed then towards when you were an adult, that 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 basically was was meant to to form in you this 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 religion that you don't even know you subscribe to, which is you know individualism. You know, the true a, a true lack of in my opinion, what what's fundamentally wrong with it, a true 
ontological lack of understanding of this of you know the greatest commandment which you know is to love the lord your god and love your neighbor as yourself and a true individualism ultimately leads one to abandon that greatest commandment because i mean what is libertarianism other than the than the uh codified lack of responsibility you have to your neighbor yeah that's true i i'd say libertarianism for all its benefits and all of its um i guess libertarianism as you mentioned that this idea that it's it's a selfish belief of look i'm gonna stick to myself and loving thy neighbor isn't exactly on the cards right my freedom matters more than say giving to others even if but notice we orthodox folks we're not freedom for us is important and i'm just going to paraphrase by this from rose the future saint that freedom from sin is paramount to us not freedom from say worldly affairs freedom from money freedom from power that does matter to some extent but freedom from sin is of course the primary thing we battle against this is the thing we are trying to achieve we we fight sin in order to free ourselves and to be more like the son of god who came to us who uh, brought us salvation so that's the particular goal of Orthodox Christianity for all those listeners who aren't aware of, you know, exactly what Orthodoxy is like th that is the primary tenets of the faith. It's not exactly to, um, you know, uh, whatever you may believe it may be about worldly power. You may be watching, you know, the news and you may be given a wrong perspective of the Orthodox faith based on what Western media is portraying it as, but that's not, that's not it. The, the primary goal is of course, freedom from sin. And, you know, that's what we try to do by attending church. And I think the clergyman uh, listening to this would be, uh, you know, would be in agreement. And hopefully we could have a clergyman on here and to discuss some of these more in-depth issues of the faith and sort of some of these foundational orthodox, um, orthodox subjects. But moving on to, say, the idea of the religion of the individual, as Conrad, you mentioned, individualism is this bizarre, uh, this bizarre thing that we're in now this phase this paradigm of everybody everybody sticks to their own and no one commits to any rights or cults or even if it may even seem positive you may say well i guess this means less people will join freemasonic lodges less people will attend synagogues less people will attend say um you know false heretical churches and cults and you know I guess you could say bad places of faith, right? So no, nobody will attend pagan temples because nobody will hold, you know, membership in these pagan cults. But we see this, it's almost like the devil works in these really mysterious, bizarre ways. He gets at people through this individualistic um, uh, stance of, well, if they don't align with anyone, maybe that's like a sort of enlightenment in itself. But that's a faith, that's a fake idea. In the Orthodox Church, we don't believe in this sort of or individualism, everybody's to themselves. Now we must join the church as a not not just a worldly organization, but it's linked to the church in heaven. It was the Orthodox Church. We believe is one. It's combined with the earthly organization is combined with the spiritual one in heaven, and of course, rule all the saints and Christ at its head. So this uh, this idea that not belonging to any sort of worldly organization is some sort of perk and like this is a something we all should strive towards it's completely a not not a christian idea and uh i guess if we go into like eschatology right conrad uh, there's this idea that you know the antichrist at the end of time will come and rule as a high priest and a king from jerusalem and he'll rule over the entire world but it seems that at this point in time despite us you know discussing the possibility of world war and the end of the world the antichrist who is he going to rule over at this time it seems like everyone's watching tiktok everybody's attention span is six seconds or less it's uh i don't even think people are ready to be ruled over by say 
I don't know, like uh, their average mayor or even their father and the mother. It's like the devil right now is in almost like a different phase of operations. Like that is the strategy of collectively ruling people through a Stalin slash Mao slash Hitler figure has ended. At least now we're in this phase of complete, you know, dis dissolving of any sort of ties, just a really degenerate sort of form of liberalism, which breaks us apart and uh, yeah and brings us of course the goal is to bring us away from the church and make it harder for us to embrace christianity um well you know i think many people would say that we're not necessarily at vvn times yet but the wheat is definitely being separated from the chaff one example just being that in christianity there's we're experiencing a big bifurcation between just the true traditional world of christianity in you know forms of traditional catholicism orthodoxy and then um, on the other side, you know, radical forms of Pentecostalism and these other New Age kind of Christian heretical cults coming out of, you know, the New World. And all the mainline inter denominations in between are kind of, you know, being hollowed out because the, the, the separation is really happening kind of on the spiritual level. And when it comes down to the, uh, the individual versus... Uh, you know, the collective idea in Christianity. This isn't to say that, like, individuals in Russia and China are these places that don't, aren't, perhaps you could say, infested with this idea so much that they're better or worse. It's just that they, 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 in many ways, experienced many years of collective oppression that shielded them from this, this idea that then allows, allows many ways just, uh, anything to kind of come and reap, reap fruit in the minds of, uh, in the minds of the people of your nation. Because, as, as as you said, they're not really ready to be ruled over by anybody. They're still being, uh, they're they're the fields of their minds, as you could say, are still being prepared for a new for a seed that will uh, that will eventually like kind of grow in a lot more people than one might expect. You know, there need there will be there eventually will be a big idea that, you know, just the idea of the worldwide community in the United Nations alone is an extremely powerful step towards a one world government that people don't realize. Like, it used to be a national identity was something that was too big for people to realize. Like for the 20th century and definitely before the 20th century, the struggle was so much for these nation states to like stay alive as a, like there was so much regionalism and so much localism that a national identity seemed too big and ridiculous and giving too much power to somebody far away. And now we already hear people talking about interplanetary unions and stuff, which stuff that's not even based in reality whatsoever. Like this complete sci-fi garbage, but people are talking about shipping your sovereignty farther and farther away from you. And that's, that's ultimately what, what like individualism, you think that you're getting sovereignty with yourself, with you as an individual, but in reality, you're just going to be able to ship it farther and farther away to somebody who will claim that they're going to ensure that you get to keep that individualism. But yeah, I think it's digressing from this, digressing from this <laughs> somewhat, uh, I'll let you finish what you said, but I was going to move on to something else after this. Very interesting, actually, digression we've had about philosophy. No, yeah, absolutely. I think the distractions of cosmism and this idea of, well, you see some people on Twitter with locations set to say, I, you know, the world or Brussels or I'm a global citizen. Like, these people are already prepared to subscribe to an, a, a new world order type, a, you know, new world order type government. It's just a matter of has it been presented yet. But I think, as you mentioned, we're not quite there yet, but War Out of Chaos is being established as we speak. And of course... The more chaos there is, the more old systems get swept aside and something you know greater could be put in. As mentioned by Alex Jones for almost decades now, you can say. 
And I, I was the funny. I saw the funny Stone Toss comic this week about just like how are we going to pay for the money to Ukraine? And then the judge is like, Alex Jones, we 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 have something to tell you. <laughs> I guess Alex Jones will be paying for the Ukraine war now with his two point seven that two point seven trillion dollars. I guess he owes the uh, the supposed uh, survivors of Sandy Hook. But uh, moving towards the that has to do with the question of freedom. You know, talking about who's free and who isn't. The free state of Germany recently decided that they were going to take another they were going to take a step towards combating hate and and whatnot and this is a translation i could not find an english language source for this i wonder why but i was translating this from german uh the this is uh this is from the bundestag and whatnot the denial and trivialization of war crimes and genocide is now punishable as incitement to hatred the Bundestag tightened criminal law on Friday night without any announcement. This applies, for example, to the denial and trivialization of Russian war crimes in Ukraine, which I'm glad that I know because I need to know this before I go to Germany because if I'm being honest, I've done my best to steer clear of Western atrocity propaganda, so I need to brush up on the Wikipedia pages of some of these you know, supposed, uh, I guess, massacres because I might accidentally end up committing a crime. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's the inherent problem of these, you know, hate crimes. It's essentially just a matter of uh, subjectivity. It's like, um, well, who do you exactly offend by saying X or Y statement? Now, of course, in Germany, we know the old laws relating to the Holocaust and the denial of that sort, which is probably the most extreme. But mind you, Holocaust denial laws exist in Russia to this day. So it's not just Germany that those laws touch upon. Now, these modern, but the Holocaust is a subject that's been researched for decades now, and you can say there's a lot of work that's been put into it. It's really to deny it you really have to go out of your way meanwhile we have events which are still mind you, even in a proper criminal procedure the prosecution wouldn't even gather enough evidence to present before a court butcher for example the alleged butcher massacre has only occurred you know was it four or five months ago and we're talking about the alleged homicide of well te technically i would say homicide still collective homicide of innocence now who has committed this homicide who, who collectively murdered all of these uh people in these all these christian people in the, in this village that's the main question right and of course the west is clearly pushing towards russia and germany is saying well if you deny that russia murdered all of these you know hundreds of people then you you're breaking the law you're essentially spreading misinformation you're denying something equivalent to say the holocaust or whatever they want to compare it to and it's just bizarre it's mind you meanwhile right conrad we we talk about subjects such as the nord stream one which was recently destroyed that's kind of gone off, you know, uh, I somebody tweeted recently that Nord Stream, and I've, I've retweeted, and Nord Stream has, the subject has gone completely off the radar. Sweden has made all of its investigation completely not transparent. You cannot find out what are the updates, who blew it up. It was obviously a NATO country. It was not Russia. Which NATO country actually destroyed Nord Stream 1? Or was it Ukraine? I mean, nobody's really sure. And notice, that story is not pushed at all. You can't question it. I mean... There's no, there's simply no material on it. It's, these investigations are still ongoing, and for Germany to actually push for, say, some of these alleged massacres, and yes, they actually are massacres. It's just a question of who did it, and for Germany to blame Russia and to say if you oppose that, it's just, uh, mind you, as from a legal perspective, this is just absolute garbage, and it's an encroachment on free speech in in a country which is supposed to be about free speech, and in, in the European Union, which criticizes Russia for its alleged you know constriction of free speech and being authoritarian it's just completely comical at this point 
Well, let's bring some clarity to comparing. I think it's even regarding, you know, something like the Holocaust. It's, I think, even disingenuous to compare Russia and Germany. Because ever since 2018, Russia basically stopped kind of uh, really uh, enforcing their post-World War II kind of anti-Nazi, kind of anti-identitarian, anti-World War II revisionism laws. Because they just realized it wasn't relevant and that the Russian state had kind of somewhat moved beyond that. And sure, perhaps you might still get written up if you really are pushing hard to disseminate you know, some very specific information. But even then, like, compared to Germany, where they'll arrest a 98-year-old grandmother for, like, engaging in, like, basic historical skepticism, like, they, they, <laughs> they, they really, really like to arrest people who, when, when it comes to these specific kinds of things, like, this kind of narrative that's very emotionally charged, they're like, all right, we, ha- we recognize that we have a window to seize power to where we can enforce speech in this regard. And... Canada has gone this way for a long time now. The UK has been this way for a really long time. It's like the one of the worst places for hate speech. And the US is really one of the last places that you can honestly talk about some subjects at all legally and publish things. So I think it's important to recognize that as Americans and other people in some a few other Western countries that might still be holding out a semblance of actual free speech that... Uh, Perhaps you, you Ukraine flag people that like free speech, you know, be careful what you wish for with, you know, punishing Russian bots and whatnot, because we might be getting speech codes in America if, if you don't careful up. Yeah, and of course, in the American context in particular, recently, the crackdown on free speech, or at least giving an opinion, and I don't want to say anything out of bounds here, because there's a lot of lawsuits going on right now. George Floyd's family is suing Kanye West, but of course, the Alex Jones lawsuit, the absolute... Uh, I'm not sure a legal travesty that we're looking at here in terms of civil suit to for the judge to actually order such a large compensation sum to be provided to the victims of the of the alleged you know offense it's just it's really unprecedented Conrad I think this is something where look Alex Jones is a proponent he's a pusher of free speech a libertarian a a person who wants to speak his mind and for them to crack down on him through economic means rather than say like force him into prison because he hasn't committed any crimes of any sort except say the civil offense which they're trying to charge him for it's it's absolutely maddening and people have been speaking about it collect like people are saying well alex jones you know maybe he deserves a fine but you know a fine of a fine of a billion dollars conrad how is this even possible like it's it yeah it's flabbergasting well, no, and it shows, like, I mean, I, who knows if the George Floyd, who knows what lawyer got in touch with George Floyd's children to, you know, sue Kanye. I, I'm i sure we know who they, what, what, you know, I'm sure we know what religion they subscribe to, but I think it's important that we realize that these are like a connect, like, the, the Kanye thing probably wouldn't have happened without the Alex Jones thing. And these legal and financial forces are really, they, they make sure to, like, set precedent and then act on it and it's they, they are able to act on a very unified front very quickly across legal financial judicial means and this is how you know the system the zog you know someone like curtis jarvin would call it the cathedral i believe there's actually more malicious actors to it than that you know the the people that act you know you might that putin in the west might call devil worshippers you know satanists these forces that exist in you know the bureaucracies and the legal governments and forces of western nations like these forces will unite and go after someone like alex jones for symbolic reason as well like as dimitri said like is there really anyone who kind of represents the like rawest kind of almost unsophisticated true american free speech vision than alex jones like i don't think so 
Yeah, I mean, the only figure right now who's kind of sitting on the sidelines, like we've seen Andrew Tate get shut down, regardless of, you know, any particular person's opinion on him, Andrew Tate did speak his mind and he got completely shut down. I think the only great figure that's left still standing, un, I guess unfiltered, is probably Joe Rogan. And I guess it depends, really, who Joe Rogan brings onto his show. Like, at this point, he's he's on Spotify, he seems protected. And this kind of goes into that idea of these great, these great figures of free speech in the West, how much freedom do they actually have? Who of them will survive into like deep into the 21st century, completely unbanned, completely uncanceled? We see Kanye's getting canceled now. Uh, Elon Musk almost got canceled by a huge Zelensky ratio because, as we can see now, Ukraine is more focused on posting memes and Reddit tier, uh, you know, ratios than say actually focusing on the ground and trying to like prop up their failed state i mean like we mentioned last week if ukraine focused on christianity more than it focused on memes and posting these nafo bot garbage posts on twitter right posting degeneracy maybe they would be results right actually praying in church actually having these like collective sessions of contemplation as to why this tragedy has occurred in the first place maybe that would have results as opposed to you know ratioing elon musk on twitter but anyhow elon musk getting actually getting a hold of Twitter now, finally solidifying that deal, will probably move us into, I suppose, a maybe like a fortified, um, I guess it will give us some, some sort of a platform where people could somewhat speak their mind. In the recent, like, in the recent few, few decades, it's been pretty bad. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think we're, we're a bit biased. We're big Twitter heads, you know, we like, we like the ability to both have a good algorithmically secure timeline with our our friends as well as engage, occasionally you know dip our toes and engage with really really silly blue checks or like swarms of obnoxious nafo bots you know this it's why places like twitter will always unfortunately be more fun than places even like gab or truth social which i respect i have a lot of respect for andrew torba and what he is doing over there i've been actually posting some of our links on world war now on gab but at the end of the day 90% of the people on gab basically agree on most issues so it's very having a place like Twitter where, for better or for worse, lefties aren't that not that many lefties are going to actually leave Twitter when Elon Musk takes over. So having this place that is actually a true, at least somewhat sample of you know worldwide opinion, you know has all of the relevant public figures verified on there, and then have it be a true free speech zone, like we'll be able to see something akin to like you know 2011, 2012, 2013 Twitter. And like someone like me or Dimitri could unironically, you know, ratio the president of Poland or something like that if some of these algorithms and bots get cleaned out. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that like um, as these world events occur, like as the war in Russia develops, as maybe China moves into Taiwan or, or maybe reunites with Taiwan for diplomatic means, I want to see left and right wing opinion. Like if you recall, uh, Conrad, before the <clears throat> was it when the the recent Antifada happened between Palestine and Israel, right? There was. All these opinions, left-wing people posting anti-Israeli things, and then, of course, uh, left-wing Israelis posting anti-Israel content, and then right-wing evangelical, right-wing conservatives posting pro-Israeli content, and kind of um, Christians kind of standing on the sideline. Although recently, I think the uh, Isra Israel's opinion on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict has been pretty positive in terms of not getting involved at all, which is, I think, the sensible case for any country, including, say, especially developed Western nations, like, you know, Saudi Arabia not getting involved, like, there really shouldn't be any support for either side if you are unrelated to them, it's in my opinion. Like, if you are not, if you're not related to Russia or Ukraine in any way, really, you shouldn't be participating in the conflict. I, I think that's a little bit far-fetched. So I do agree with Israel's stance here, but 
um, you know, as world events heat up and these diplomatic actions are taking place and possible conflict, uh, you know, the show is called World War Now, we are watching geo geopolitics unfold in real time, right, and commenting on them. As these events unfold, to have a platform where we could actually interact with left-wing as well as right-wing opinions and kind of see who wins out in the end is, I think, an incredibly positive I, I truly think it probably is an arena of free speech. Hopefully, that's what it, Elon Musk, you know, makes his makes it his goal to create such a such an arena like a where you know the best ideas win out. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And even if Elon Musk himself isn't necessarily what you would call a good actor and is really just using this as a chance to consolidate tech, you know, he talks about the one app, the X app that'll have everything, which anyone who understands, you know, technocratic globalism will be a bit skeptical of an idea like that and a bit wary. But we've talked about this with Jim Jatris. Metropolitan Neophytos had his interview with Orthodox Ethos where he talks about how, you know, St. Porfirios prophesied to him that the technology of, of our age, the internet, which was really unknown in night in the early nineties would 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 be would allow him to amplify his message of 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 repentance and then ultimately just the message of orthodoxy. And so I, I directly see this 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 kind of shooting back in of the free speech back into the internet space as a as a fantastic opportunity for the truth of orthodoxy to spread, both because of the political situation as well as just we've talked about it before, like this the 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 soil of people's minds is ripe for is ripe for seed and we need to make sure that they hear the truth of the gospel before they hear something that might lead them towards a technocratic you know satanic future yeah like i think recently the idea that the story about the dirty bomb and mikhailov right and this i actually think this there would probably be something of substance to this theory the fact that you know defense minister shoigu actually spread the news or spread the word contacted multiple ministers of defense in the span of a few days right? And kind of, we don't know what they spoke about, but the fact that this story has been escalated across social media into actual real uh, political uh, events and decisions, I think that's kind of a testament to the fact that, yeah, the information still spreads incredibly quickly, and it's just a matter of people um, you know, reacting to this news and how it's perceived. And, you know, well, everyone perceives things differently, as we've discussed on World War Now, the previous episodes. Everyone comes from a particular perspective. Muslims see it their way, Jews see it their way. Christians, of course, have their own unique perspective, depending on the denomination. But we Orthodox folks, we see things from our um, particular angle, and we stick to that. We don't necessarily skip, uh, jump ship, and act liberal about things. But yeah, the recent dirty bomb story is probably the largest. I'm not sure what to call it. It's uh, I guess it's been kind of blown out of proportion by either side. We see it kind of pushed up to the forefront in Russian media, Russian talk shows are just going absolutely crazy, claiming that the Ukrainians, and let me just give you some backstory here, I guess to the listeners, are there's a city in Ukraine called uh, Nikolaev. Nikolaev, essentially, uh, the Russians have claimed on, on, their, on their end first that the Ukrainians were setting off a false flag bomb. A nuclear bomb would be set off inside the city. Now, I know this sounds like something out of Batman, Bane, you know, setting up this terrorist act, but the Russians did actually claim this, that the Ukrainians would blow up a bomb in their own city and blame it on Russia and start essentially World War III. Now, this accusation has quickly moved on to, say, different various ministers of defense calling each other. Zelensky, of course, openly addressing this over a Zoom call, telling his people that, look, this theory is absolutely fake. We're not, we're not planning. We don't have any nuclear weapons at all. The fact that Zelensky addressed it is, I think, a little bit... Uh, yeah, basically, the story is really sp spoken about. It's quite um, quite bizarre. Uh, I think the fact that 
nothing is coming of it in the end, it probably means either, I, one of two things. Either the Ukraine was actually planning to blow up a bomb in Nikolaev. If so, the Russians, Russians spreading this news over social media, kind of preparing um, the public opinion for it, will maybe even prevent the false flag in the first place, right? And two is that maybe this was just an absolute misinformation campaign by the Russian side, and it's just kind of a propaganda piece, essentially trying to um, villainize the Ukrainians further, in which case it's a little bit hard to discern which claims are, uh, you know, which claims are actual propaganda villainization tactics and which claims are true, because we, as we know, the Ukrainian side spreads its own sort of array of misinformation, and they actually have committed atrocities throughout this, you know, throughout the last eight years, frankly. So Russians claiming something extraordinary like this doesn't necessarily come off as a lie at first glance. So I guess it will be interesting to see how the world reacts to this dirty bomb theory, but it's still kind of in the air at the moment. You know, ministers of defense are still talking. Diplomats are still kind of arguing among each other what shall be done. But um, if we do see a nuke go off in Nikolaev, hopefully things will kind of not escalate into a third world war because I feel like this would really be a move out of chaos and not really one coming from a sort of uh, organized, sort of rational place. It's, it really seems like it would be a false flag event set up by probably very malicious powers. Well, if, if it is uh, something that the Russians have accurately identified and are truly warning them about, I don't have much of a doubt in my mind that it would involve in some way uh, the troops, I believe it's the 101st Army Airborne, that are training now in, was it Moldova, Romania, or one of the countries, or actually just maybe just like one of the countries bordering Ukraine. And if they were to then be affected by this dirty bomb, you know, that would, could that be a Casas Belli, perhaps a, I think we talked about this in the interview with Jim Jatris, the, uh, Perhaps not a NATO force, as was talked about, but a you know a joint force of a coalition of the willing, as the West, as the West really likes to talk about. But in many ways, it's this is gonna, as more of the stuff heats up, more and more forces are gonna be forced to pick sides. And you talked about like Israel's neutrality, and they're trying to maintain, in many ways, is also their government ever since Netanyahu has been this bizarre patchwork coalition of ultra Zionists and moderates. But they, they. Uh, they're trying to maintain a frame of, of neutrality, but I've seen all sorts of reports that they have finally started covertly sending Ukraine anti-missile systems and certain air defenses, which if that does come to light and the Russians do verify, that's going to be extremely interesting. And on that same front, I mean, Egypt, who is, you know, historically one of Israel's primary adversaries, they've announced that they're going, they're doing full de-dollarization. Their central bank is fully trying to abandon the dollar, which I'm sure we'll start to see regime change attempts in Egypt at some point, but please remember, Egypt is a huge military power, a very large population center, of course, controls, you know, the Nile River and everything, very important. And then, of course, that even could bring in the Ethiopia conflict, which we're hopefully going to have at least part of an episode in the future about. But th th as these, uh, as more of this, uh, these ideas of nuclear bombs, dirty bombs, and the conflict continues to go on without, uh, you know, negotiation, more of these countries like Israel are going to be forced to bend towards the will of, 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 I guess the the the, the global order that they've benefited from so much. Yeah, I think not many not many countries are going to be left actually to choose or to at least stay in the neutral area, which Israel has been fortunate enough to sit in for this little time. I think countries are going to be forced to choose essentially between Russia or Ukraine. Already so many hundreds of billions of dollars have been provided to Ukraine in both human uh, humanitarian as well as military aid. It's just a matter of time but before, you know, whoever doesn't tithe or provide a tenth of their, you know, GDP to towards the the, the falling nation of Ukraine will be marked as um I don't know, like a 
someone who is uh, disloyal to the order, to the New World Order, to the um, system that uh, the globalists are building around us. I think the fact that Putin, mind you, Putin and his regime has remained somewhat neutral in regards to not asking other people for support, other countries, other world leaders, is is actually uh, probably the more noble and the more honest approach. Russia is taking this as an, a, a local conflict, which they're willing to resolve. They have set you know, as we've mentioned on multiple episodes, they have a set list of priorities. They're willing to go out and achieve them. It's not a matter of, say, having everyone involved. It's not a um, a GoFundMe. It's not a collective uh, quest against a certain um, against a, the. It's not a world conf conquest thing that's going on, which they're trying to paint Putin as if he's going to conquer the entire European Union. But it's simply a fight over, firstly, Donbass. And the people there in Donbass to save them from genocide, which, you know, we've seen the Ukrainians push this issue. And by Ukrainians, I don't mean the average Ukrainian person. I mean the extremists, the hardcore liberals, the neo-Nazis, right? The people who are actually pushing these agendas. And I'm sure the Israelis feel the same about the radical Palestinians and the Palestinians feel the same about, say, the radical Israelis. And mind you, from the outside, we may not even understand the perspective of either of either side of any of these conflicts without actually being on the ground. So that's that's why it's always good to have a bit of an objective view and at least to view the conflict through your particular, you know, religious stance, like, you know, you know, kind of measure it up against your, your religious and ethic views. Does, does this particular, do these actions of said politician measure up to say what the gospel or what the church fathers say? Does this measure up to, say, what is written in the Quran from the Muslim perspective? Are Kadyrov's actions reminiscent of, say, I don't know, um, some of the previous Sunni leaders in Islamic history? You can kind of grasp world, I guess, world affairs, grasp the legitimacy of modern leaders by these um, religious standards. I think that's a continuing thing we need to do and we need to, continuing to continue to reflect upon. And, you know, you mentioned Netanyahu and his coalition in Israel, and I'm sure conservative Jews have various opinions on Netanyahu, but his support for, say, I guess, a conservative Judaism is really what um, what what is kind of holding the state of Israel together against this, uh, you know, as you mentioned, growing, these growing Islamic powers. And right now, at the moment, they're at peace. This Egypt is seeking an independent... Um, I guess an independent economy. We have the Hijaz, the Saudi Arabia, essentially building up its power. And uh, what's going to happen in the future, especially with the rising oil prices? Like Israel will be met with these, um, essentially these foes, which have a different political as well as religious identity and religious objective in Israel, in the in the land of the Levant. I mean, again, I think people could piece together enough of my written and spoken analysis for me to say that I, I see Israel siding with the Turks and ultimately the rest of the Islamic world likely going against that, that specter when it comes to a possible third world war where each of these zones are forced, you know, to pick sides and everything. And it's so important that you talked about how it's not just that you should look through your everyone should try their best to have a cohesive worldview that can cover, you know, metaphysics, ethics these sorts of questions. And I think geopolitics fits into that, at least as a subcategory of, you know, the philosophical kind of questions of our of our time and the questions that people will come over in their lifetime. But but when it comes to the Orthodox perspective, which we on this podcast don't just seek to inform you of, but at least me, I seek to convince you that you should adopt that paradigm to then thus on your own interpret geopolitics this way. 
is is all these conflicts. It perhaps the Russia-Ukraine one requires a bit more nuance because there is this schism involved. But especially when it comes to like the authority of Israel and Palestine, you know, the Orthodox gives us the vantage point of not being forced to side with you know the Israeli government or Zionism or the Palestinian Authority and Islam. We have the luxury of just being able to support the Patriarch of Jerusalem and being able to support the preservation of holy sites there and then support the growth of Christianity, which unfortunately has been, you know, in decline compared to the other two, you know, major forces of Islam and Zionism. But that's just a good example of how, in many ways, a dialectic that's been formed in the public consciousness can be, you know, ignored because of the Orthodox perspective. And we're getting close to the end here. I want to give Dimitri the opportunity to maybe wrap us up a little bit, tie it back to the what we talked about at the beginning with the conferences, and then uh, we're gonna then we're gonna land the plane. Yeah, I think it's just the I think it's quite striking that both of these events essentially occurred in October, and we have these two world powers solidifying themselves both nationally as well as ideologically, kind of looking forward. Meanwhile, in America, we see completely zero an absence of response. America is ignoring both the Russian conference as well as the Chinese Congress. They're not commenting at all. Joe Biden's speaking about his third or fourth booster at the moment on Twitter. It's just a complete disconnection from reality. And of course, we have the midterm elections coming up in the United States. So perhaps the politicians are busy trying to, you know, campaign for their seats. But just the, I guess the reaction of the first world power to say Russia and China solidifying themselves, building up this internal cohesion among themselves in both an ideological as well as cultural fashion, as we're seeing now, currently I is is really staggering for me as a person who views America as still an incredibly powerful element and player in world affairs. I think America's opinion really does matter, and America not providing that opinion in said context, you know, in these particular circumstances is really staggering. And of course, certain American scholars are posting articles and journalists are commenting on it, but just the absence of just the carefree attitude that the Biden administration has had towards Russia and China has probably allowed Putin to actually intervene in Ukraine in the first place. Like, you know, would Donald Trump with his powerful rhetoric have allowed this? Probably not, frankly. And would would Trump have, would allow, say, Xi Jinping to actually, I don't know, um, maybe push Taiwan, at least rhetor- rhetorically and probably even militarily in the near future? I would say probably not. So I'd say American domestic politics seems to impact world affairs a lot more than we can even imagine. So kind of in conclusion, the World Russian People's Council is still in development. I would recommend you follow myself, Conrad, as well as World War Now. We'll be posting a lot about it, as well as some of the conclusions from the Chinese Communist Congress and the implications that may have on the future of not just China, but Taiwan. I think there are some summaries that need to be made and people need to kind of get their heads around the fact that, look, China is not just a sleeping giant anymore. It's an active player in world affairs and so is Russia. And, you know, you can see some of the speeches and summaries that we've been talking about for the Russian World People Council. Like these statements are powerful. Russia, the patriarch, the people, the participants, they see Russia as the third Rome. They see Russia as the catacomb, the, you know, Second Thessalonians chapter two reference that Russia is the religious entity which will hold back the Antichrist by the grace of the Holy Spirit. What what does that even mean? I'm sure there will there'll be an episode or an article in which we discuss that in the in depth, but these are really powerful religious sentiments growing in the Russian in the Russian society at the moment. And just the complete ignorance of that by the Americans, completely just calling Russians barbarians and ignorant, you know, Putinists and like this is beyond Putin. This is 
Poon is simply a servant to this particular civilizational message, which is right now being spoken about at the Royal Russian People's Council. So, and uh, yeah, it's the fact that it's just being ignored by the West or being ignored by mainstream Twitter news is frankly surprising. Like it is uh, really undue. No, I agree. And I think this was a really good conversation. I think uh, be sure to follow us on Substack. Like Dimitri said, we're going to have a lot more articles coming out. Uh, worldwarnow.substack.com subscribe to us on youtube world war now uh follow us on twitter world war now underscore follow us on telegram world war now telly t-e-l-e um and yeah uh pray uh, ask for the intercessions of the saints of the boxer rebellion for the conversion of china ask for the intercession of saint lawrence of chernigov saint paisio saint porfirios these these prophets of our time uh yeah and uh be sure like i said follow us on substack youtube all these places again pray for peace you know pray that uh these times might, you know, not be so might not be so bloody as perhaps they are. And uh, with that, uh, have a good week and uh, God bless. Goodbye, everyone.